ones. Back to ones. Reset. Everyone back to ones. Now we're cut. Everyone back to ones. Okay, here we go. Everyone in ones. Here we go. All right, we're recording. Okay, great. Um, I have no idea what we're doing or in what order. <laughs> have we started on time? Uh, yes. Everything's great. I think I wrote everything on my phone. <laughs> You're such a goof. Um, <laughs> if only there was someone who could help me. <laughs> Oh, I see what you're doing here. I see what you're doing. You know, I think about being a filmmaker and being a director, and this is kind of talking to some of the um, younger filmmakers listening to the podcast. Oftentimes we forget about that uh, very important person who keeps us on time, on schedule, solves problems with us. Like almost, not. It, it's tough to say because there's a lot of really important people on set, but this person is incredibly important and quite frankly can kind of make or break an experience i definitely think so and i remember my um first years at film school when we were taking a directing class this is like 20 years ago and i mean three years uh, i mean three years ago yeah uh (laughs) and uh our directing teacher was a first ad and i I was like, I never, I mean, I saw it in the credits, but I didn't know what a first AD was. And he worked for Star Trek. And mm-hmm. and of course, he later became a director for television. But that was the first time I understood the importance of that very um, little known outside of the film industry job. Yeah, because a lot of people, so first AD is first assistant director. And a lot of people assume that it's kind of a similar job as a director, almost like a shadow to the director or something like that, but it's a completely different position. And so I'm very excited today on our show for our interview. We have a good friend of mine um, and a very talented assistant director who's coming in, going to talk about his career. His name is Cody Gallo. Now you might know him because he is actually giving the AD cadence in our theme music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so one of our favorite first ADs to work with. Of all time. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into the interview. We're going to talk about um, how he got into ADing, some of the skills needed to AD, even if it's a, a two or three man crew or three person crew, all the way up to 200 people, he said sometimes on mm-hmm. some of these TV shows that he's working with. Mm-hmm. I will say when we've worked with him, we were doing some um, client shoots a few years ago. I think we were doing for Discovery. And uh, he was such a gem to have on set. He was a great problem solver. Um, just calm and cool and chill and such your ally like just um, really I saw what what an AD who is an advocate for the director can look like when I think about ADs I always think about that scene in Pulp Fiction when um, you know they're they're sitting at the house they don't know what to do with the car they need help he's freaking out and, <laughs> and he says don't worry I'm calling the wolf I feel like an AD <laughs> I love it. Is when the wolf shows up. Right, it's like, well, we're going to solve uh... this. we got two hours. You need to get rid of this body. All right, we got you. Except for, you know, no get rid of bodies, you know, unless it's like a dummy, right? True. Yeah. Anyway, uh, introducing the wolf. Cody Gallo. So uh, I went to Florida State University for film school with D and... That was my first introduction to assistant directing. I probably kind of didn't really know what it was, but uh, the program we were in was production oriented and 
So we had to do kind of all these different roles and we would rotate through them. And and so that was uh, one of the jobs that I ended up doing on set. And I was like, you know, it kind of fit with, uh, you know, some of the my personality and traits and skills that I enjoyed. So that was kind of my first introduction and, you know, probably kind of planted the seed um, there. And uh, from film school, I went straight into the army. I was on an army scholarship for school. So I did four years active duty in the U.S. Army. And uh, that was kind of a, you know, a whole aside from filmmaking. But the plan was always to kind of go back to filmmaking. And that was, uh, let's see, we graduated 2005, 2006. So I was in the Army from 06 to 2010. And uh, that was an interesting period to to do that because I basically went to film school. We got to shoot on super 16 millimeter film and it was an awesome experience. And then this was right when like red was coming out and oh, digital. Yeah. It was this whole digital revolution and disruption in the film industry. So I came back to the industry in 2010 uh, cause I had enjoyed cinematography uh, really lighting camera and I could have gone kind of gone down that path, but uh it was a real, you know, I came back then in 2010 and I felt like, man, I've been away from the industry for four years and like everything changed. Uh, and then, you know, that's a different conversation, but maybe it didn't so much uh, <laughs> when it comes to that. We're back, some big stuff's back to shooting on film, but um, the army experience also, you know, the, it's almost a cliche at this point of the the military comparisons to the AD department. But um yeah, it, you know, it was a natural fit with uh, the continued kind of leadership organization experience I got in the Army. So 2010, I started out living in Washington, D.C. and got in with a company as a PA uh, and they were doing training films for the Army. So six months later, they needed a first AD. So I just kind of jumped from PA to first AD uh, for this company. These were these kind of industrial training films, small crew and that was just kind of the uh jump right in and kind of don't look back so uh i started there um uh, a year later uh my wife and i moved out to california so i continued the process there uh san francisco bay area for nine months and doing some indie uh films at this point and then we moved to southern california san diego and at that point, I was close enough to L.A. I'd been kind of circling the orbit without ever uh, <laughs> trying to move to Los Angeles. But I knew about the uh, Directors Guild, the DGA Assistant Directing Program, which has a technical title. Uh, lots of letters, DGPTP. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, but basically, this is a program for the uh, Assistant Director Career Path. And so I applied for that program. A lot of FSU alumni go do go through this program. It kind of the the film school sets us up in a way for it um, if you want to go that track. And uh, yeah, so I applied uh, because this program is a work apprenticeship type program that gets you that makes you eligible to join the Directors Guild of America as a, a second assistant director when you join. And uh, yeah, so I did that. It took me three years. You do four hundred days of production where the program and you have seminars, but the program puts you on uh, film and TV sets uh, around LA. You have to live in LA. There's a New York program, but I was in the LA one. And so that's what I did um, 
from about well, that was 2013 to 2016 and yeah. it's an amazing experience it's a very uh we, you know it's a rigorous demanding program because um they put you on shows usually for 50 production days at a time they rotate you around and you they kind of control your life in that respect you <laughs> can't say no when they assign you to a job you have to show up uh you have to be like i don't know it was like a hundred mile radius of la you couldn't leave la without getting permission from the program like for this was like three years yeah. of your you know, life so it's uh it's not for everybody and uh but the amazing thing about it is you get opportunities to work with lots of ad's and right. you're put on these shows so you're networking and meeting people and uh you know i um you know, I started with uh, season nine of Bones was my first assignment. And then, you know, went there. Some other ones I did. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine was uh, a fun show to work on, which uh, will come could come up later. We talk about working hours. <laughs> that one was good hours. <laughs> um, and, uh, that, and then you do different jobs in the program. So like on that one, I have my specific role was setting background, uh, mm. dealing with extras. And... Then, um, yeah, and then kind of uh, another highlight, uh, one of the best production experiences, it was one of my last uh, assignments was Twin Peaks The Return, uh, oh. on David Lynch. And uh, and again, that, and also um, was doing the background setting extras on that. So that's also like a kind of favorite position. You're more on set because uh, the other options are like running base camp. Sure. And, um I can talk about the different jobs in the AD department, but, um, but yeah, then you, you, when you finish the program, uh, you get, you basically do your 400th day and then you're either graduated, uh, and you keep working for a production or like they, they're not going to keep hiring you. Cause at that point you flip over you, you're getting paid as a trainee. There's a, a set rate. And then, but after day 400, you, the, the switch flips and you're now paid the second AD rate. So, uh, so yeah, I joined the DGA in 2016, and I was still living in San Diego, but working in LA. And uh, yeah, so then I second AD'd um, for a number of years on different TV shows. And and again, the best thing about the program is you come out of you come out of that experience with all these ads, uh, and they're the ones that hire you when right. you're. Um, kind of working in this, uh, level of the industry. And there's usually, you know, between, uh, probably four to six or maybe even 10 ADs, depending on if it's a TV show with multiple departments. But, um, so yeah, you're kind of part of this department and, uh, yeah, so I worked as a second AD for a number of years and then the pandemic hit 2020, everything shut down. Yeah. And uh, that'll kind of bring us up to present. Uh, my my wife and I, we had talked for a while about living abroad and the pandemic, uh, we were looking at it, but the pandemic really made the the choice easier in the breaking away, the peeling off the suction cups of everything that life puts on you. But uh, we moved to Bergen, Norway in the middle. In January 2021, we landed here in Norway. And, and I wasn't sure I was going to, keep i was i wasn't sure i'd find ad work here I, I knew there was some productions but um i thought oh well you know worst case i'm gonna like go back to atlanta where i grew up and you know do jobs there and kind of 
commute back and forth, but that would be difficult. I would only have to, you know, kind of work for a few months at a time or short jobs. But, um, but I got to Bergen and uh, there were some productions happening. I met some producers through a FSU film, uh, uh, another alumni contact, Wolf Craft. Yeah, so I got to introduce some people and turned out they really needed ADs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so I got hired right out of the box, as you could say. But um, yeah, it was about uh, 10. You had to, I had to quarantine for 10 days. And then uh, when I landed here and then uh, the next week I went and met with some producers. And so that led me into uh, this kind of streak this past two years in Norway. And I got to jump back into first assistant directing, which I love. And uh, yeah, so just uh, these last two years here, I ended up doing uh, two feature, two full feature films, and then what I call the winter units of two other films. They had done their main production, and then they needed to shoot um, kind of the last third, both of them, it was about the last third of the film. They needed to shoot and they waited for the winter. So I did that, got to experience shooting in uh, the Arctic in January last year. Oh, yeah. Ulta. Uh, that was uh, cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then I got hired for two TV shows and did two of those uh, back or back to back on top of each other. It was, uh, <laughs> I was jumping back and forth. But so yeah, that, um, just kind of led me, uh, yeah, to this point where I got this opportunity to uh, kind of work in the U.S., work in L.A., um, doing the indie film before that, and and then coming to Norway and kind of getting into this Norwegian production model and culture. And yeah. Yeah, what's the difference in, in that production model, model and culture uh, compared to the states? And are there some things that we should bring back to the states? from Norway. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think um it's really interesting to see it uh, on a couple levels. So they I mean, I really am impressed with the the craft and level of quality on what they produce here and and create. And then they are still like pretty scrappy then too in doing it doing a lot with less. And so I think it is uh in some ways more comparable to um kind of indie filmmaking but then there's some differences and so on the one hand uh so they have smaller crews which for me that was a big difference um going from dga work in la uh on average your crew on tv show in la was 80 people every day plus if you had big cast days or extra days you know i was as a second idea i was coordinating you know all the logistics how do you feed that you know in days with 200 people you know how do we transport and feed and what you know and it becomes this huge kind of beast just to move the production around you're shooting a neighborhood and you have six semi trucks worth of uh, equipment and yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's the discussion you have a lot of okay well then the dp says oh i want to turn around and look that way <laughs> <laughs> start moving the trucks and you do it and it takes you know i mean the teamsters are good they can move the trucks in like 30 minutes but you know that's 30 minutes of yeah. uh of, of waiting so um here yeah it's the smaller crews they haven't quite like grown to that level uh even on 
you know, on a, what I would say, you know, a funded, like a, a production with money as opposed to uh, just a totally independent um, filmmaker. The other difference though is they have the model here. It's you see the same thing kind of, I think in Canada, but uh, there's state funding for arts mm-hmm. nice. production. So there's these funds for short films, for feature films, production support. So um that's one thing about it yeah (laughs) i mean just it's a little thing but like with short films like that they can actually get a a small budget so they they use small crews but then they've got they've rented whole camera packages Mm -hmm. and light packages and because they have that uh bit of money which is a lot of times i think independent filmmakers really people starting out in the u.s and there's not support unless you have money or you just have you know some kind of investor who wants to put some money in a short film because there's no real return on investment yeah uh, in selling a short film but so i think that's kind of where like the dps here the dops director of photography as it's uh the acronym here but um yeah they get to like you know they use stuff in film school and then they come right out of film school and they're working on short films and they're they're getting a whole camera package with uh, prime lenses and and using that kind of getting used to working that way but then it'll be like a very small team so like the camera team's very experienced with all the equipment but you don't have uh five electricians and five grips so that to me was like okay i gotta adjust as an ad like you know what is the lighting setup gonna take or you know everybody is kind of doing two jobs so things you know i'm used to as an ad i can schedule and think about the shooting day as like things happen uh concurrently mm-hmm. and now it's got to think about the fact okay things are going to happen a little more sequentially because sure. you know, sure. <laughs> we're going to do this and then that same person has to go go and do the other thing just add a little time in there yeah but you know i love the, about you because you know you started off doing the three-person crews, I think about our friend Tim and his film um, and doing those sorts of movies. And then you also still are an incredible photographer, you know, even though you're you're ADing most. And I want to know, are there things that kind of are the same, no matter if it's you and a friend in a van traveling across the country making a film, or if it's, you know... Um, David Lynch. David Lynch. <laughs> are there some, like, consistencies in how you approach the problems? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh, question, and I think, um, yeah, there there is kind of a consistency, and and you kind of mentioned is, you know, for my job, it's a lot of problem solving, and it's just like, here's the vision, here's what we want to accomplish. Okay, now here's the reality of what like, we the resources we have, and so yeah, I mean that you know this film uh, I worked on with with Tim the Lanks and we shot it uh driving across the country literally from Jacksonville to Albuquerque New Mexico and um you know it is that at what point as the AD I got to have that conversation cuz I'm looking around saying you know this is what we're trying to accomplish this is what we're actually accomplishing and you know you got to look at those kind of breaking points on everybody too and the crew mm-hmm. and I think um, and that's on every level, you're asking for a lot from people. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, if you're on that big budget TV show and that's what I saw in LA it was the same thing of, 
you're looking around at how much you're asking of different people and departments. And you're kind of, as an AD, I've got to monitor um, kind of who's maybe close to a breaking point or getting worn out or frustrated. And you're kind of shifting those attention and resources around. So it's, you know, sometimes I'm really pushing you know, hair and makeup to get done faster. You know, it's like, I need this actor ready, you know, and I push them, I push them. And then there's kind of a point where like, okay, I've been pushing them too much. They're getting <laughs> frustrated. They're been up early. They get it, come in early to do all their work. Um, so, all right, I'm going to just, you know, when the director of DP is like, oh, wait, we're lit, we're ready. You know, we're the actors. I have to turn around and be like, they're in hair and makeup and i'll get them when they're ready and then i have to be the you know the buffer of just like i want to shoot if if i'm doing my job well i kind of anticipate these things i'm checking in that's what i learned through the dga program and working with really good ad's is that i getting the estimates from hair and makeup earlier so i you know okay it's gonna be an hour till this actor's ready and then I talk to the DP and he says, all right, I'll be lit in 30 minutes. And I'm already like, you know, I'm going to be waiting for 30 minutes. So now I can start. Hey, is there anything else we can shoot without this act? Can we do, can we sure. pick up an incident? And if I plant those seeds or I talk to the right people by asking the DP first, or if the DP is not that, you know, person who helps me find the, the <laughs> solutions, then, you know, okay, maybe it's the director. And I say, you know, and then the director's like, oh, yeah, I really wanted to just get a shot of the sunrise while we're waiting. And then, uh, you know, I let them convince the DP that they need to do that. And <laughs> and now, OK, we're doing something productive uh, for 30 <laughs> minutes and then the actor's ready and you come in and you did something productive. Uh, you also didn't pull the actor, you know, from hair makeup or rush them or make them, as we say, double team hair yeah. if you have. A separate hair and makeup so person. Makeup. Every time I'm sitting in the hair and makeup chair, they're like, I've just sat down and someone's like, how much time we need her in three minutes. And I could see they're like panicking. And yeah, it is a, it is a tricky thing, but Cody, what you do is so important. And what D and I talk about frequently is just how hard it is to find a good first AD and how much it really sets the tone for what kind of set you have it. Like you either have a director who's like set up for success and they can focus on the creative and focus on the overall leadership. Um, you have someone who like you're talking about is this sort of peacekeeper between departments because everybody needs time. Everybody also needs to be efficient. And there's so many, you're like running a city, you know, you've got all of these different little like mini small businesses. And like you said, like catering and transportation, and it's so much to coordinate. And, um, and I think it can be hard to find really great ADs. And it makes sense that, you know, you guys are going to get swept up through the system if you can go through a program like the training program and such. But for filmmakers who are, you know, interviewing for their AD, if a director is looking to find an AD, mm. what are some of the questions they should ask? And like, what qualities of a person should they look for in order to have an effectively run set? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, when you're having that conversation, if you're a director and you're trying to find that AD and uh, interview it, and then it's 
you know, you might have, uh, you know, hopefully, yeah, you're in the position you're getting interview, you know, professional IDs with experience and, and resumes. But maybe if you're at a different level, what happens a lot of time is maybe there's somebody who is also a director, an actor, but they also AD. I see that a lot. And again, they've seen they have those kind of skills and they like uh, to do that job. So, you know, that's kind of what I see at the indie level a lot is that you will have somebody who will is willing to jump in and it's like, okay, you you need that um, person who can do that. But so what kind of qualities are you looking for? I think uh, like you kind of mentioned it. This person is going to have to be kind of a diplomat peacekeeper between, you know, with the crew. And I think the one thing about the job is, you know, it does straddle this line between the creative and the kind of logistical and it's that you know vision meets reality uh, aspect so you need somebody that you can connect with and share the vision of the creative vision so uh because you, as a director and the dop who are really the ones on set every there's a couple there's i mean there's a number of creative departments but when when you're working with the first ad uh you know that's what everybody's it and i should expand it a little bit from those two, but they're the two I work with on set the most, but in prep, you're working with the costume designer and the production designer as well to kind of figure out all the problems and challenges. And uh, so you have to understand the creative vision and support it uh, because what you're going to hear a lot of as AD is this is, this shot is really important because of this aspect of the story it tells or no, we really have to wait and change the sweater on the actor because it wasn't the right color for the scene and their whole motivation of the character. This is a motif that we've designed, you know, and so you have to get that. And I think as director, you want to make sure the AD does connect, you know, that you have this kind of language on the creative aspect because you're going to have those discussions. And then you know, what I try to do as an AD when you have problems on set is uh, I, kind of one thing I learned from the army, which is like never go to your boss with a problem without also at least having a suggestion of a solution. Mm -hmm. And there's a tact to way you suggest it, too. It's I'm I'm offering you a suggestion, but, you know, it's up to your uh you know, your judgment and wisdom of whether my suggestion is good, but at least I'm not just kind of like running up, you know, chicken with my head cut off, like, oh my God, like the actor's <laughs> not going to be ready for 30 minutes. What are we going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you don't want to, you know, that's one thing you don't want. And that's hard to tell in an interview. Like, does somebody keep their cool under pressure? Because uh, the thing I get the most feedback on in my own ADing is that doesn't matter how stressful it gets. I never project any of that. You don't know. Um, you know, it's not about just dictating like we can't do what you wanted. We have to do this. You know, it's like, right. you know, what you wanted to do isn't quite working. Here's some ideas. And just I think that's the thing of if somebody shares a creative vision, uh, that's the other thing I see where people get really frustrated with their ADs is when that AD is like, I'm trying to make a solution, but it's not in it doesn't support the creative vision at all and that's when the directors they can sniff that out uh pretty quick when 
you know, in TV, the ADs work a little bit more for the producers and the showrunners and the directors, you know, if they're guest directors, unless they're a producing director. Um, so they can kind of like tell when like you're just making a, you know, a suggestion that's better for the schedule or the budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think if you have a good relationship, of course, like the director is also responsible for the the schedule and the budget because they know if they go way over, uh, it's going to you know overall hurt things. But uh, yeah, I think finding that connection on the creative aspect and then, um, yeah, I think the other thing I would say is like, if you know, as a director, kind of what, uh, what you want support from, like, because different directors uh, if you kind of know how you are on set, it's like, well, what support do you want? The, the kind of more, somebody has more of a presence. Like right. I got to be, mm-hmm. I've got to be the president. I got to be the loud voice kind of commanding Not You know, I don't, you know, believe in the yelling AD, but, uh, you know, from the army, I call it a command presence. That's like, uh, it's a way that you project your voice at uh, people just do what you say and they don't question it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I need to learn. And, that uh, learnable? Yeah. I was like, especially yeah. for a four-year-old. How do uh, we train? <laughs> yeah, I use it on my six-year-old now too. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, and then the other time, but sometimes the director kind of, they, they have their own presence. So then it's like, maybe you, then it's clashing. If, if a director has a big presence, uh, and maybe, uh, you know, I've worked with directors where, you know, they are, they're the real demanding one and everybody's kind of a little kind of on their toes. Cause like, they don't want to cross the director cause the director's got a short temper kind of, you know, so, uh, I mean, for me, it's kind of, easier because then i don't have to be the bad guy so it's like everybody's afraid of the director so then i get to just be you the peacekeeper yeah Come that's to me. my strength uh if i'm gonna be honest and uh, you know i can step it up a little bit to be the uh enforcer but uh you know that's kind of less my thing um uh, and i like to do the schedule and have a really good plan and and that kind of stuff um so but that's the other thing maybe are you looking for an ad who's scheduling is a project that you really want it's like complicated and you need a good schedule or is it more free form you're going to do a lot of improv so you really just you need somebody who's a little bit more flexible is like not going to stress out like if you know you're like oh I'm, I'm going to spend four hours on this scene instead of two but i know that the last scene you know isn't less important to me i'm going to just shoot as one shot and move on and um you know the you know, if you don't have that good communication, there's ADs who then would just stress out the whole time because yeah. like, you know, we're way behind schedule and then there's going to be this ball of stress. Uh, and that's, you know, we've had a couple of great experiences with ADs and a couple of quirky ones. And anytime we could get you when we were simultaneously in LA, he was like, I just need a Cody. Like, how do I find another Cody? Yeah. I don't need an AD. I need a Cody. And then all these <laughs> other people are like, you know, that, other person that like is on the TV show that's playing the character, but it's not the same person. You're like, what happened to the? They tricked out the mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Season two, and you're like, huh? You're like, is this Cody a different Bob? person? <laughs> exactly. What's that strategy that we use, or we we think, or you think about using when um when trying to be like I'm a professional person working on a 
industry that likes to have 80 hour days, it feels like, <laughs> um, that, that looks at you sideways when you say, I, I need to go pick someone up from daycare at three, unlike other jobs, you know, like, how do we, how does one, I guess, balance all that is the question. And have you figured that out at all? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've figured it out. I've been, uh, it's, it's, it's a constant process, but I think, uh, coming to Norway was like the eye-opening thing because there is a cultural difference around working hours and and that has kind of been eye-opening for me so I mean you joke about 80 hours but in LA is 80 hour weeks are the norm the average it's and so there's kind of breaking down the comparisons it's as an AD in LA for years I was doing uh, frequently 12 to 14 hours and you could do up to 16 hours on a day and cumulatively you were doing these 80 hour weeks and you would start at 7 a.m or if you're coming in early with hair and makeup 6 a.m on a monday and be finishing at uh you know sometimes 6 a.m on saturday morning then people are like how do you do 80 hour weeks that doesn't when do you sleep well the the film schedule shifts throughout the week. So you you do 14 hours, you have nine to 10 hours turnaround, which is from leaving work to coming in the next day. And some of those uh, are enshrined in the union rules. But what happens is you keep shifting that start later throughout the week. So by Friday, you're starting at 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know filming till 4 or 6 a.m. And they call it a fratter day. Um, so that uh yeah i think that just is like how do you kind of have that family work life balance and and then i think the other thing which is just kind of this undercurrent in the industry which is this in kind of all the roles is like we're we kind of uh as filmmakers uh i think feed into or buy into it is just like that you're really important your job is so important you're on set and if I was to say like, okay, I got to leave to go, you know, pick up my daughter from school. I got to leave for two hours and come back or, you know, or today's like the birthday party. So I've just got to, you know, some people, even LA, you know, they, they were good. They would do that. But I think there's a lot of people who were just kind of like, I, you know, I can't step away like, cause my role is too important. And, and, you know, it comes from certain things. I mean, there is, you know, when you're filming a show and the actor is in the scene, you know, that's like they, if they step away, we have to stop, we have to reschedule, but we, you know, you try to do that. Um, you schedule around it and you talk with the actors on long running shows and, and make those things. But yeah, I think it then kind of permeates to the other departments and, uh, yeah, I think it's just kind of really wears people down. And I think the biggest thing for me to coming to Norway uh, was just, uh, you know, realizing that I worked on these shows and like people who were like, we would have, you know, run-ins or something or somebody would lose their temper or just, you know, it's like people were so sleep deprived that they're just not even their normal selves. I've run into people like, you know, two or three years later and we we're talking about like a show we worked on and one were like, we're talking to like, here, just like whole personality is different. And I think the research is out there. The science is out there on, on sleep deprivation that, uh, you know, it really changes people's personalities. Yeah. And, 
you know, you don't even, I can kind of realize it when you're in it and other people, yeah, who just like saw me later, I was like, oh my God, you were just like a zombie at times on the show. It was like, you know, working such long hours and it was just kind of like, um, yeah, it's, uh, it can be ridiculous. So what I gained, uh, the insight coming Norway one, uh, I started scheduling and the producers were, it was like, okay, I want you to schedule eight hour days. And I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. So, I mean, uh, it, the norm, and that's the thing, which really I love to just kind of like start spreading this like idea or conversation around is we got into this norm in the U.S., which is like you just film 12-hour days. It's you six hours, you break for lunch, and then you do another six hours. And that became the expectation. That's what everybody kind of expects and, and budgets for. and 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 uh i don't think it's the best way and then i came here and the producer's like well we want to schedule eight hour days because that's the norm you know after eight hours is overtime and uh so these are lower budget kind of more independent but there's still a union there's like one union in norway that covers all the film workers and whether you're part of the union or not if the producers are signatory to the to the union, then they have to honor the rate. So, nice. um, and there's a couple uh, clauses in the that that um, so that you know the rates uh, are. I've looked at them. It's it's pretty similar to like the lower tier like DGA rates, and and then uh, so the overtime really isn't that different. But I think there's more of a culture of like not taking overtime or not planning for overtime. Gotcha. So they want you to schedule eight hour days, but you know, we would do some 10, but then like 11 hour over 11 hours gets like really expensive. So I haven't like, I think in all my productions, I only did maybe one or two days that we went 11 hours wow. and I was like, wow. uh, and that's like your, your shooting day. And some people do have a little bit longer hours, but, um, but it was so it's interesting because suddenly like the thing with the sleep it was just kind of like i mean norwegians um have a reputation for being nice which i found to be true um but uh i think it is also just kind of like you're working with everybody and it's just like oh everybody's working together it feels nice like the you know people are just not like snapping and just super stressed out constantly there's still stress because you're still trying to um, do these films in a tight schedule, a tight budget. Uh, the budgets are less. So, um, but to me, it's kind of eye-opening to say like, it's really hard to quantify what you're losing when you just burn people, like when you schedule these 12 hour mm -hmm. days in the U S because you have a 12 hour day, but then if something goes wrong, then you go in overtime and you go 14 hours. And then if people came in for pre-calls like hair and makeup, and have to stay later for wrap out and cleanup. you know, they're doing 16 hour days. And a lot of the studios were finally instituting like a 14 hour cutoff where you just had to send people home. So, you know, we started stagger shifting like PA. So you had like a kind of a, the early crew and the late crew and you try to stagger and, but, uh, but yeah, I think it really was just saying like, I, it's hard to quantify what you're losing uh, when you work these long days, like I don't think people are at their best over a long running show, you know, a longer yeah. production, like, um, you know, the films I've 
worked on uh one was like about six weeks um and then um yeah the couple other ones it was like varying uh, amounts uh one of the tv shows was spread out across you know three months with the with the holiday break and so yeah it's on those i think that's like um kind of a message though for like the producers and directors it's like you know, you prep a film and you put all this energy and you finally get to production. You've been like gestating and working on this thing and it's your baby. And you finally like are going to get, you got this, like if you're doing any film, maybe you got like 20 days of production and this is it, you're doing it. And you probably, you know, depending on the level, but if you're at the level where you have a budget, 2 million mm-hmm. or more and you're hiring professional people, it's like, well, you know, these people are are doing this almost all year with, you know, maybe a few weeks off in between here and there. So I think that's the hard thing is like, I know some people, this is like, you know, this is the big project. I'm going to put everything in. I'll work, you know, I mean, as a director and producer, you're putting in 20, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah sure. I know how it is for director. You're on set for 12 hours. Then you go home, you watch dailies, you do, all, you know, I know the directors are, you know, barely getting six, seven hours of sleep because, you know, this is what they signed up for. But it's a um, different adrenaline, though, because when it's your yeah. thing you're directing and you're making decisions and it, it it feels different than when I'm here and I feel like someone maybe is wasting my time because, I, you know, or I'm here to execute something for someone else versus it's my movie I'm producing or my thing I'm directing. It just you have a different energy about a turnaround. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And things can get dangerous. I've been on sets because also not only do you have departments that maybe work 16 hours and then to your point have their like mm-hmm. set up and tear down. Sometimes your set is really far from where people live mm-hmm. and now they're commuting an hour each way and barely sleeping four hours if so. And then it's it really is just a situation where you've also got um, you're putting people in danger and it's tricky. Like, do you think because this is the norm here, you know, if the norm, the norms are different in Norway, it sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, but with the norms here, like, how do you think we implement that stuff? Uh, because I know it, the other thing that I think I experience a lot is our industry here can be fairly fear-based in terms of our hiring practices because it's so competitive and because there are these huge budgets and there's a lot resting on these things being successful and, and, you know, financially successful in their sales. And, um, but so often I think people are like so afraid to, to, you know, step out of line or to ask for, you know, any type of, um, extra support or extra. And I, and I think that can kind of like trickle down from the top too. If you're like, okay, I have to make this huge, like blow it out of the water success of a production with X amount of money. So we're going to squeeze as much as we can into these days, right. Into like 20 days or into even a TV show, you know, like, what are we, what are we trying to squeeze in? Um, And then every department now is being squeezed down to the very bottom and you can, and then if people are exhausted to your point, you can get testy and, and then you really aren't doing your best work. So how is it that efficient number one? Like, do you end up with a product that's as good in the end? Um, But number two, even if a product turns out, well, if it's not good for people, how do we make these changes? How do we convince in a you know, in a business where people are kind of like, okay, well, we're, we're looking at the dollars. We're looking at, um, cause I have a friend, he's like, it's not show a uh, hobby. 
it's not show fun. It is show business, <laughs> but you know, are there business practices that we can use to push these? Yeah, things exactly. Man, uh, you bring up a lot of good points. So there's like a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, so kind of like, um, first thing up front. Uh, so I was saying like the Norwegian producers asked me to schedule an eight hour day and we have this kind of norm in the U S and also you could say international, um, refers to Norwegians say that it kind of refers to like French and UK and American because it's all a similar kind of style in the hours and amount of work. Um, but so the biggest lesson for, for me that is, I think there's actually a happy medium and to me it's 10 hour work days. And, uh, so, and I want to get to some of your other points on the budgets, the stress, the business, uh, sorry, I threw but, a lot at you. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm saying it now so I can remember to hit them all. But yeah. So what I found is I was the, you know, they want me to schedule eight hour days, including lunch and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, rehearsals and prep and all this. They're like, Oh, well, the director and the actors, they have a different deal. They can come in early and, uh, do some rehearsing before uh, the crew call. It's like, okay, like I do hair and makeup too. Um, (laughs) but you know, the funny thing too, is like when I start looking at that, you know, at eight hours, take out lunch, take out this. And it's like, there was a point where like, okay, if you have like a longer scene, like uh, maybe a four or five page scene, I'm suddenly like, I can only schedule like one and a half scenes a day. Like this is because I'm awkwardly now having to like spread out uh, right. a scene yeah. over two days. And that's just like, doesn't make sense. Now they're very, you know, they're common sense oriented here. If I went back to the producer and I said, you know, okay, this, this day is going to schedule more like, let's do a nine or we have some 10 hour days because you're on a location, you know, and this is uh, how long it's going to take and the time we need. So to me, what I, what I really advocate for uh, and what I would like to see the industry and just people get in the norm to is I say, plan for a 10 hour day. And that's like, you know, five hours, a half hour lunch. You come back from lunch and do five hours. It's, it's more reasonable. You're going to have people doing work before and after. So there, some people are going to still do those 12 hour days and, and that, you know, they, sh- their contracts or rates should reflect that. Um, and then also it still gives you like, if you have that 10 hour day, um, you get in trouble, you need an extra hour of overtime to finish a scene, unforeseen kind of difficulties then maybe you're hitting 11 hours, 11 and a half with lunch. It's still uh, a much more reasonable day. And then if you can also throw in a few, you know, less than 10 hour days in the schedule. And then if there's a really big day and you need to schedule 11 hours, people understand. Um, and, and I think you do that. But I think, you know, to, we need to get away from the, the 12 hour being the norm. And and a lot of this come up with the pandemic because coming back from the lockdown of the pandemic, pre-vaccine and a lot of the studio, a lot of the agreements were that the studios at the biggest you know level, I was still living in California at that time. And I did go back and do a show before I moved. And the promise was that we're, we're going to do less hours because pandemic and people's immune systems to stay strong. We're going to do 10 hour days and 
kind of more turnaround and stuff. So that kind of showed the little bit of uh, the possibility there. And then uh, I didn't, I followed a little bit, but it was like after I moved, there was uh, kind of IATSE strike or threat of strike. And I was really hoping, I kind of knew it was too much to hope for, but uh, some of it was around working hours. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, some of the unions may have to to fight for the 10 hour day and, and producers on the side will even just tell you that because there's some, you know, at certain levels of producers, uh, line producer, somebody, it's just like, well, they need that. They need that union rule or whatever to make to prove that they can do it. Yeah. Or make convince the other people. Yeah. Cause then they can go to the studio and say, it's a lot more expensive to schedule, right. You know, basically you do the breakdown of the number of days. So it's like, okay, 10, if we're only doing 10 hours, we need an extra two days for a TV show. And um, so that's, uh, you know, I think that would help if just people um, kind of plan for that. And I think just as indie producers and directors, I think it's like, if you can, if you can plan for it and then just do it. I think it's just think it's the right thing to do. And you might not be working with union people, so you might not have that uh, incentive, but if you can look at the schedule and say it's an extra day and and it becomes a balance between the usually the equipment package rental and that's usually the thing that makes it harder to extend. But if you if you're gonna get the package for an extra day anyway, because it's not gonna get returned until a Monday or um and then I think what happens is uh, in general, there's just kind of the rule is that like the time available, like the work will expand to fit the time. So if everybody just expects 12 hours, then it's going to be 12 hours. And that's what the director and DP are going to expect that they're going to have 12 hours to do the work. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I think it's finding that balance earlier in prep when you're breaking it down and scheduling it to say, how do we do 10 hour days? How many days does that mean? The producers will then crunch and that's where it then got like kind of pushed uh, i think back into this kind of 12 hours but i think too just speaking to the direction dps out there is that like the limitations the constraints like that makes you uh, have to be creative and i think get better results it's like you're carving away and the heart of the piece uh, you'll find it through this whole process prep production post but part of it is that uh, you kind of have this limitation on time and suddenly in that stress, and that's what I deal with the most on set in the <laughs> stress of the moment when you've got to get the scene and get the shot. And you, like you're saying, D as a director, you got that adrenaline of like, this is, I got to, you know, as a director, I've got this uh, thing I'm trying to make, and this is my chance. And suddenly it can become clear, you know, and say, okay, we're, we're running out of time. We have time for, for three more shots. So, you look at your your shot list with 10 shots on it and you know you got time for three and suddenly when you look at it if you have that real good sense of what your project is about it's clear it becomes clear like the adrenaline the like stress suddenly you look at it and say these are the three shots that i'm going to use in the edit that mm-hmm. you know or i've been watching the scene i'm watching the performance and like you know, I'm really going to just stay on this uh, actor's performance for the scene because that's what it's really about. And you suddenly have this clarity. Uh, and so I think that it's kind of like important to trust in that process and not be afraid of that stress. Uh, 
when you're in the moment. And I think that's kind of the hardest thing is, you know, you don't want to just let the stress overwhelm you and to where you shut down. So it's just, um, you know, I always think about, uh, you know, Francis Ford Coppola talks about with all of his films, there's just like one word that he kind of boils down what that film is about, because he talks about how you get bombarded throughout the day. It's like decision fatigue because it's so many things. And, and, uh, you know, I can't remember specifically for like the Godfather, but it was, you know, like loyalty or uh, honor. I think it was honor for Godfather. So, you know, it's like when the prop guy says, would he drink from this cup? And he's like, does this cup say honor to me? <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of weird and abstract, but what he's getting at is like, you're going to get bombarded. You're going to be in the stress. And so if you, you're going to be more authentic, if you really know what that core thing is. And for him, he boils it down to a word, but it's, you know, it, you can define it different ways in your creative process on, on what's important. Um, and then, um, and then that was kind of goes to one other thing you said, Christina, on that like uh, stress, like oh, this budget and you, you know, all this pressure that the creatives uh, are are feeling. And that's the other thing I was seeing in LA, and then coming here is, I also I will challenge the industry to say that there's the budgets are getting so big that it's almost unmanageable and so stressful and that's you know and and i kind of just had that viewpoint in the ad office sitting there you know the watching the producing director watching the line producer try to manage these things and answer to the studio and say you know we're spending six to seven million dollars per episode of television right um or more. I mean, Euphoria is, uh, I think, in probably north of ten million. Or, and and then coming here, and it's like the budgets are smaller. You can be a little bit more creative and experimental. But the biggest thing is like, I think when it like we put that stress of managing these astronomical budgets on people. It's no wonder that like, oh, how did this film fail? We put $200 million into this film. Uh, it's, it's like it failed because you put $200 million into this like big movie. It made it like a couple things we've talked about. It's like the schedule had no limit. Like you could do whatever you want. You could, you know. Um, but the other thing is just like there's it just kind of turns into this bloat that gets so big and i think that there's probably some happy mediums and uh yeah i i personally feel like i observed that where you know i'm just this producing director sitting in their office kind of like sitting at the computer like oh god i'm about you know this is like going off the rails and we're you know or it literally i've done the math on a tv show where okay we're spending 250 dollars a minute like so well, yeah. that's i mean we literally get into the stress mode with the pas it's like who invited the actor from the trailer like did you miscommunicate and now we waited five minutes because yeah. the actor nobody told the actor we were ready on set we waited you know that's there's literally line producers and upms you know production managers who are kind of like what you know that was over a thousand dollars you just burned because of a miscommunication like you know all right that's fired ad's fired like i mean i won't get into the horror stories but i've been on shows many ad's and pas more ad's getting fired luckily 
the uh, than the PAs. I don't think they get paid enough to yeah shoulder uh, that that burden. Take it out on them, but uh, yeah. I worked with a director recently who the whole it was on a TV show, and the crew loved her. They were so excited. She had such a good reputation um, because she knew what she wanted and she's really efficient. And everyone's like, she always wraps early. She knows what she wants. She was an actor before she works really well with actors. Um, she doesn't get a bunch of footage that she isn't going to use. Like, and it was so great to see that, like, she was, she was praised for that and people loved working with her. She does great work. Like she's a very experienced director. Um, so she's not just like skimming by, but she knows exactly what she wants. She has clarity. People trust her. And you could see the crew's energy was like buoyant at the thought of working with her because they know, number one, if she's clear, they know what their marching orders are and they know how to please her. And they know, you know, because your job is crew, you want your director to be happy with you, you know? Um, but I, I thought about that a lot and I've, I've been on sets too, where, yeah, things are way behind. And, yeah. um, and I can feel bad for those directors at times too, because I can see they have a vision that they're really afraid to not be able to execute correctly, mm. you know, and, and that there's a lot for them at stake, um, with their name on it and with, you know, the demands being what they are, but, uh, but it is amazing to see the trickle down effect of, of efficiency and that it is a form of kind of kindness and care for the people that you're working with. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up a great point and uh, I can definitely vouch for what you're saying is like, especially like guest directors on TV shows. Uh, if you, they, they get those reputations <laughs> and <laughs> if you come in, you know what you want, you're efficient, like the below the line crew, like loves you. you yeah. Know? They will, they'll just be like, you'll be walking to the stage. They'll be like, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and if you don't, you totally lose the crew and they're just gonna like, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. And the cast too. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I've seen like some, some cast really not respond to, uh, you know, guest director. And I think there's been a lot of commentary on that as a director, knowing what you want, you just kind of have to have that confidence when you're, you know, asking or really telling people what to do as a director. And, but I think that's a big thing on morale is like, come in knowing what you want, like be kind of confident and decisive when you're, you know, directing the scene, but then also, you know, what you want. And, and, and from a scheduling perspective, like we try to like set up those first couple of days on any shoot where you're, you're going to like set up for six. You don't want to do your like most challenging thing. And you kind of talk to the director, like what scenes they want to start with. And right. it's like, but that is important. I think just kind of lesson for anybody is just, you know, really prep those first couple of days, try to set a tone that you know what you want and know what you're doing. And uh, that's the kind of thing of like, when you say, when you'll cut, you know, be decisive in the way when you say like cut, don't be like, um, cuts, like, (laughs) like you could project, I've seen it. You can project indecisiveness just at the end of the take. You're like, did I, was that what I wanted? It's just kind of like, you know, just be confident. And then it's like, okay, you need a minute to kind of like, you know, think about it and like process and give the note and figure out why it isn't working or what you want. But, uh, but yeah, you definitely got to project that. And, and I think there's two things on it. It's yeah. Be confident and efficient or, 
you know, you have a project that like people really believe in like the material. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're going to, that's like the other times when I've seen people, you know, crews just have like kind of really high morality. They believe in it. So yeah, I think it's important to establish early, like, and if you can, like I'm saying, if you can be like efficient and confident in the beginning uh, and kind of establish that, then like, even if you have some like rough spots, you hit a scene that's not going so well, you know, the crew, because I hear it, because I, you know, my job as second AD yeah. was to go around and talk to every department every day to make the call sheet and schedule, coordinate things. So when I was a second AD, and I still do it as a first AD in talking to all the departments, is you hear, you know, you hear stuff and, you know, it's, and so it can be like, uh, you know, this person never knows what they want. It's just, uh, you know, we do these 12 hour days and they're just like, we sit there while they think, you know, <laughs> and, you know or we reshot the scene from a different angle. Um, and you hear that, or you hear like, how usually they know what they want, but I don't know what's going on today. You know? So it's kind of like, that's what I'm, the point I guess I was kind of making is like, you know, set yourself up for success, uh, establish that because you'll, you, you know, you'll get kind of be, the crew will be a little more forgiving than when, when uh, something doesn't go your way and, and that kind of stuff. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good advice. Great advice. Cody, I'm mindful of the time, um, but I feel like audiences may be interested to know that you are the voice of our back to your one theme here. And uh, maybe you can give us a good one as we ride on out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, maybe D, you need to set me up because usually up. it's director yells cut. Uh, cut? No, a decisive <laughs> cut. Give him a decisive one, babe. <laughs> All right, cut. Okay, that's a cut. Back to your ones. There it is. There it is. I need to think. Give me about an hour. I'm gonna go back to hair and makeup. This is where I cover you. Okay, uh, I gotta, I gotta set some background. Give me, just give me five minutes. I need to make some adjustments to the background. So there you go. There's your cover. Give it on you the can... background. All right. Oh, if I can, uh, if you can throw it on, I want to just throw out a plug for uh, the project uh, I was putting together with Kate Ryan Brewer, another uh, FSU alum, but. Uh, we put together as a side project this thing called the Pandemic Collection. It's uh, a website for a series of short films that uh, she and some filmmakers she collaborates with, they did it to stay just kind of productive and active throughout the pandemic. They were these kind of micro short uh, poetic tone pieces. It was interesting. They were kind of passing the footage and the writing uh, remotely from person to person. And these pieces would kind of get shaped like that and um they ended up making five of them and they wanted a, a place to put them out so we built this kind of bespoke microsite for them and uh it's live now at uh cinema.tv slash pandemic underscore collection but uh you can also kind of find it on social media but uh yeah just uh invite people to check it out in their own time uh, i know some people are not into relieving the pandemic other people are still processing it's everybody had their own experience so uh just kind of a, a space to check out some short films and uh process and kind of yeah interested to see what uh people think so we'll include the link but is it cinema the c-n-m-a like your yeah yeah it's the uh contraction it's creators of new media alliance cnma.tv Great, great. We will definitely check it out. I think I saw you posting them a little on um, Instagram and they looked really beautiful. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's what we uh, we try. My whole pitch to them was uh, there's these small short films and kind of to make a space off of uh, social media, off the algorithmic feeds. Uh, but then uh, we use social media to promote the site and kind of encourage people to go kind of step away from social media because the pieces, uh, they're not your kind of TikTok fair um, viral videos. They're kind of more artistic pieces that you can uh, kind of ruminate on. So, uh, yeah, but we promote them on social media. Wait to watch. After my heart, man. I can't wait to watch this later. All right. Thanks, yeah. Cody. All right. Thank you. It's good to see you both. All right, ma'am. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Want to give a shout out to Justin Portis of Delicate Minds for writing our music and also Cody Gallo for giving us our AD cadence. Thanks.